funding for THINK comes from SMU Master and Doctor of Liberal Studies programs. You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. For 45 years, Bob Ray Sanders has been a beacon of hope to those eager to build more just, tolerant, and economically stable communities, and sometimes a thorn in the side of those who had benefited from the status quo. Bob Ray grew up in Fort Worth, went to college in Denton, and signed on with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram as a political and courthouse reporter in 1969. Later, he worked here at KERA, reporting for the Watershed Newsroom television program on Channel 13, and being present to flip the switch to power up KERA 90.1 for the first time in July of 1974. In 1990, he left KERA and returned to the Star-Telegram as a columnist, vice president, and associate editor over the years, during which tenure we were honored many times to have him join us on this show to provide perspective on American politics. Bob Ray has never been shy about his commitment to social justice, racial equality, and the power of education. His dogged and insightful reporting have not always pleased those who disagreed with him, but remarkably, when he announced last spring that he planned to retire, many people who had openly disagreed with his positions in his columns also tipped their hats to his fairness, his professionalism, and his stellar writing. An era ended last month when Bob Ray Sanders officially retired from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. We are delighted he was willing to make time for us to talk about the long and influential ride of his career. Bob Ray, welcome back to Think. It's good to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because it means I get to ask you all the things that you and I really only know each other from in this capacity, right? Yes. So here's something I've always wondered. How did you get the name Bob Ray? My oldest sister, who... Um was getting married. I'm the youngest of 11 children. My family goes back 150 years here. I have a nephew who's nine days older than I am that most people think is my brother. Mm-hmm. So, But my oldest sister, who had just gotten married at about the time I was being born, my parents gave her the privilege of naming me. And and my full, it's actually Bobby Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she named, I have no idea why she named me that. That's what she came up with. And that's what stuck with well, now, is her son, who is your uncle, did he get the better name? Well, well, or did well, you get the better name? Well, well, my, well, my nephew, who's nine days older than I am, is Andrew. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was named Junior. That was my oldest brother's son. So, you know, they, they tend to get, you know, they were named uh, Andrew Philip Timothy. They were biblical names for Bobby Ray, I don't think, is in the Bible. So. <laughs> it's a good name, though. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, and, and, and it fools people because sometimes they hear Bob Ray Sanders in Texas and they assume something else. Redneck, whatever, you know, until they start reading me. And then they're trying to figure out, wait. What? He doesn't sound just, like a redneck. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, but I am Texan all the way. Now, my mom is from a family of 15, and um, they would do a litany in their family, like Susie, Julie, Linda, Billy, Peter, all the way down. Did, is that how it worked in your family? Well, in, in our family, we were exactly, except between me and my uh, next oldest brother, the family is two years apart. All the kids are two years apart with birthdays on even numbered years or, you know, odd number years. That's impressive family planning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're six years apart. Mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to be here. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't supposed to be born, but I popped up anyway. Uh, but the way I would always tell their ages, I would add six years to my age and then two years, and we go up the scale to the, to the oldest one, Andrew's senior. Is there something about being the youngest in a big family like that that set you up to be someone <laughs> who 
could could fight for what you believed in in a really persistent way. Well, you know, it's interesting because in my family, from my father, who who was you know the ruler, except my mother was the enforcer, but my father always encouraged debate, and that's where we got that from. I mean, we sat around the breakfast table, the dinner table, Sunday dinner particularly. And he would agitate. He would get people arguing about things, and he would take opposite sides. And, and of course, my older brothers and sisters would tell you that they thought I was privileged because there were certain things I wouldn't eat. I still don't. <laughs> and my mother would fix special things for me, and they always claimed that I didn't do as much work as they did, and I certainly didn't get punished as much as they did. And I would remind them that I never did the things that they did to get punished. <laughs> uh, but it, it prepared you to, to deal with all kinds of thought. Because we were all, I mean, even though we're very close family to this day, we we were able to argue and, and argue without fighting for the most part. And even though my, I've heard fights of my older brothers and sisters that I wasn't around to see, but we, we could argue and, and still do at, at, at certain family gatherings about certain things that are important to us. But our father taught us that. That explains so much about you because I've seen you debate really openly and I've never seen you lose your cool even when people said things that, that might cause someone else to suddenly – it gets personal. Well, you know, and again, that that thus comes from the family uh, Sunday dinner table, uh, and which which went from breakfast to dinner to late night sometimes. We're all sitting around arguing. But at the same time, I have people throughout my life. I mean my, my people who, who taught Sunday school – uh, Mrs. Tucker, who lived next door, uh, who was also a Sunday school teacher, my teachers at Riverside Elementary, and then I am Terrell High School, the historic black high school in Fort Worth. Uh, all of them taught me debate, and and debate meant civil argument. It, it didn't mean calling names. It, it meant being prepared, ha- having the facts to back up your argument. And And that's what I always tried to do when I present a thesis like in debate, when you're taught, you've got to be prepared to argue the other side. And so I tried to make sure that I could answer some of those criticisms before they came to me in a column or in a commentary here at Channel 13. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that all came from all those influences that were in my early childhood. Okay, so Sunday school's already come up twice here. How big a role did, did the church play in your in your upbringing? Oh, wow. You really did uh, hit on something there. Church played an important role because of the influence of the people in the church, even though I had issues with the church. I grew up in a Baptist church. And again, this is not Southern Baptist because, you know, there were black Baptists and there were white Baptists and uh, we were the black Baptists. But it was very, very conservative in thought. And I would argue with the preacher and when I and when I became I, when I was in college, I came home every Sunday or every weekend, and I taught Sunday school. I taught teenagers Sunday school, but I taught it openly. I mean, uh, with with interpretation. And I can remember once I said, and 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 the minister who would, whose office was right off from the main sanctuary where, where my class was held uh would listen in and of course and he would often come in at the end and, and add a comment or two. And I can remember very distinctly, um, I said to my class, I said, you know, you can question God. You know, I mean, you know, I mean I question God all the time. Well, I didn't realize that that offended him very much. And he came in after that and and didn't say very much in the Sunday school portion, but then his whole sermon became, We have someone here who thinks you can question God, who thinks he's 
big enough, good enough, whatever. Hmm. They can question God. And when we had a discussion afterwards, I said, well, yeah, I actually do think that. I mean, and he says, well, well, you need to question which God you're serving. And so we had this estranged uh, thing going on for a while until we reconciled. But the the church was also a place for debate because uh, in our church, which really taught that women didn't have certain roles, the fact is that if women didn't, our church wouldn't have survived because the women were the ones who were making that church run. If women didn't do some of the things that needed to be done, it wouldn't have been done. There weren't enough men in the church to do it. So anyway, there was a contradiction there, but the church is still very much a part of my life. I want to play something really quick here. And this is uh, 1988 or 9, I believe. Well, first of all, I think we need to say right out front that the media, except for the church, perhaps, is the most racist institution in America. (laughs) You still feel that way? Yes, I do feel that way. Um, I taught a course for several years at TCU and at Texas Women's University called Race, Gender, and the Media. And where I talk about the racism in the media, and it's it's still there, the sexism in the media. It is still there, obviously. But I, I, I tell people that the church... And religion in general, but but I know the church um, is racist and sexist, and and I I tell you, I mean, if, if if bigotry is not a part of the church, I mean, what other institution tells you if you don't believe what I believe, you're going to hell? And we do that every Sunday. I mean, sometimes it's not that blatant, but in fact, that's what we teach: that you've got to believe what I believe, and we teach, you know, we we, we teach by example that if you don't believe what I believe. I have a right to hate you for that. I have a right to hurt you for it even. And I see it, all the conflicts in the world going on right now are religious-based. It, it's, you know, it, it's not government-based. I mean, I mean, government plays a role, but some of the government is part of religion. And I just wonder if, if we took religion out of it, if Jerusalem <laughs> didn't exist, you know, what, what what kind of peace would we have? But when you have three religions claiming that as sort of the birthplace, in some ways, of, of who and what they are, how, how do you how do you deal with that? So yeah, re- religion is uh, one of the institutions that I think has to be dealt with. Why do you think human nature, if if requires is the wrong word, it seems like even in cultures where people. Um, you know, are sort of from the same place, look the same, um, nominally believe the same things. We're always looking for some some classification to create some other and, and divide ourselves. Why do you think that is? You know what? Um, it is human nature. It is not godly nature by any means. It is not, quote, Christian nature, as I understand Christianity or Islam or uh, Judaism. Uh, it's, it, it's not the nature of, of the religion. It, it is human for us to look at someone and try to find a difference and put ourselves above that other person. It, it was, I, I think it may have been the outer limits and it may have been the twilight zone, but uh, there was this culture where everybody was literally black and white. I mean, I mean, half of their face was black, the other half was white. And suddenly, I mean, there was division. And there was a, one group dominating the other or trying to. And they were trying to figure out, and of course, and the, you know, the episode is, well, one was black on, on the left side and one was white on the left side. So even though they were literally split down the middle, black and white, 
it was depending on what side of the black and white you happen to be. Well, we've done that throughout our culture in Texas, in the South, growing up under Jim Crow, where I know the people who got to know each other, and because I grew up with some of the people, it was fine. You know, I mean, we were friends, but when it got time to go to school, you went to that school, I went to the other school. Um, I got bused to the other school. You, you went up the street. I had to go someplace else. And somehow there was a culture that said in order for you to accept yourself, you had to prove that you were better than anybody who looked like me. And that persisted for so long, and it still, it still persists. I mean, what this president is going through today is based partly on that, uh, that he cannot be better than nobody, anybody, anybody close to uh, being white, if you will. And, and we grew up at a time when I didn't define color, I didn't define race, but somebody did. And it is a, it, it is defined. It, it is a, you know, construct that they said, okay, no matter how white you may look, if you have one drop of black blood, you are black. And I mean, I, mean, I went to school with people who were white enough to pass. They, they didn't. I mean, they lived in my community. They, uh, you know, I mean, there are people in my family, same way. But at the same time, there were p- other people who said, wait a minute. In order for me to accept who I am and my culture, I have to say that I am better than you. So I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how wealthy you are. If I'm white, I am better than you. That exists today. We're speaking this hour with journalist Bob Ray Sanders. He retired last month from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram after a career that lasted 46 years. Welcome back to our conversation in a couple of minutes. You can join it by calling 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. Funding for THINK comes from SMU Graduate Liberal Studies, offering evening programs for a Master of Liberal Studies and the new Doctor of Liberal Studies degree. You can design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU this fall. More at smu.edu gls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Bob Ray Sanders, who retired recently from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, where he worked over the years as a reporter, a Metro columnist, and president and associate editor. He also worked here at KERA for a number of years on Newsroom and also at KERA 90.1. You can join our conversation at 1-800-933-5372. Did you, uh, was there a point at which, Barbara, you understood what segregated schools actually meant? Did you go for your first day of, I don't know if you started in kindergarten or first grade, and it was just what you knew? Or did someone sit down and explain to you, this is how it'll be? No, no, you, you knew. In, in, in Jim Crow South, you knew what your place was supposed to be, even though you had family members who said, uh, this is what the law says, but this is what you're going to do. Now, again, my family goes back 150 years in Fort Worth. Landowners which meant they paid taxes. So I got past, you know, sent past four or five schools to get to the high school that I went to. 
even though my family's taxes pay for all those other schools. So I understood that. We could go to the Forest Park Zoo one day out of the year. My parents, my grandparents had paid to build that. So you, you, knew, you knew that. And, and, uh, and even though, as I said, I mean, we would know kids in the area that we could play with after school and sometimes, you know, went to a swimming hole, you know, a, basically a gravel pit uh, to be with. When it came time to go to public institutions, when it came time to go to the public school, well, we knew that where our place was. Now, at the time that I graduated from high school, or the year before I graduated, there was a principal from a high school who said that they were they were ready to integrate. This was a, this was a decade after Brown v. Board. We should oh, say. oh, oh, yeah, yeah. This you know, nineteen fifty four. I was in the first grade, mm-hmm. so I still went through eleven more years of a segregated in the. Uh, uh, segregated education institutions because the Fort Worth School District at that time decided rather than try to integrate, they would build three new high schools, which is what they did. I mean, they created three new. They added a grade to each of the uh, three junior highs until 1957. So they had three new black high schools. So there were four black high schools by the time I got to high school. Uh, there was a way of trying to get around Brown versus Board of Education. At some point, somebody finally decided, and it was so silly, you know, it, the, the, the added in, in income for schools to try to build extra buildings. Then after Brown versus Board of Education, they really did try to upgrade some of the black schools to try to make them look equal, even though they weren't in terms of all the supplies and all that kind of stuff. But uh, let me say this. I don't give anything. I wouldn't give anything for the education I got at I.M. Terrell High School. Because I had teachers, many of them with their uh, masters and doctorates outside of Texas because they couldn't get it here, had to go outside the state, and they still came back and taught me. They not only cared about me, they loved me, and to this day, I'm in touch with some of those educators uh, that I love uh, to this day. And I drive by that school almost once a week, just to say, "Hey, listen, uh, this 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 made me who I am to a great degree." And the fact that now, and I push for this along with uh, board member T.A. Sims, that school is now going to be the new arts uh, academy and the new uh, STEM academy. Like Booker T. Washington in the Dallas school district. Exactly. And that's the example that we used. And, and people have been trying to do that for years, and, and it was rejected. And now they see the light. Who turned you on to Langston Hughes? Oh, boy, Mrs. Hands, uh, 10th grade English teacher who uh, said, if you're going to be a writer, you, you you need to know this man. And that was my first time. And keep in mind, Langston Hughes was banned in Fort Worth. I, I don't know if it was officially banned, but he was not included in any, any, any books, was not to be included on any reading list. So she went beyond when she gave me that, that book, uh, The Dream Keeper. And, uh, and there was one poem in there. And I, and I recited often, and in fact did uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, that literally changed my life. Because it told me at a time when other people were saying to me that my beginning was in 1619 when a slave ship landed on the East Coast. That was my beginning. Well, Langston in The Negro Speaks of Rivers says, I've known rivers, ancient dusky rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep 
like the rivers. You see, I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I pitched my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked up on the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing on the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I saw its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. You see, I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. And you see, in that one poem, that little simple poem about rivers, Langston told me, that not only was my beginning not tied to a slave ship, because he said, I, I, I bathed in the Euphrates, not yesterday or the day before, but when dawns were young. And just as my beginning was not tied to a slave ship, neither was my destiny. So Reba Hands did more for me in giving me that book that you can even imagine. And I can tell you that she, uh, when she got older, she went to live with her son in California, And in 2000, when the tornado hit Fort Worth, the mail, I had had a letter in the mailbox, and I recognized the handwriting, beautiful handwriting. I mean, school teacher handwriting. Oh, oh, beautiful handwriting. And it was from Mrs. Hands who said, I I heard that Fort Worth was hit by a tornado, and you came to mind, and I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Hmm. And then, of course, we started correspondence up until the time that, that she later died. But yeah, Reba Hands. But there were many teachers like that at I.M. Terrell. Did you know from an early age that journalism was going to be your thing? Well, my family will tell you that they knew in the fifth grade when I was in, that I was going to be a writer or a journalist or a reporter because I was, always, I was a noses kid. <laughs> I would interview, when firemen came to, to the neighborhood, I'd interview the firemen. I'd come back and tell it. You know, when something was going on I, uh, and I was writing, um, for my fifth, I mean, my 11th birthday, I remember it well because I came home, got the boats, and there was like a party for me that I didn't know was planned. My older sister had given me a camera, which I still have. It's a Kodak box camera with a flash attachment. My brother, older brother, who was a senior in high school at the time, had uh, he and one of his friends had given me a, a pair of blue jeans and a yellow shirt that had newsprint on it. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was the comics, but it was the newsprint. And... We go back to that time and say, you know, well, we all knew that you were going to do this. And certainly by the ninth grade, for sure, I knew that I was going to be a, a journalist. And and that was fueled some by the civil rights movement and what the media had been able to do in bringing things to light. And I knew that if they could take me to Birmingham, if they could take me to Selma, if they could make me care about what was going on in those places, maybe I could do that same thing one day. How'd you get your first job? <laughs> well, uh, my first job as a journalist uh, was on a graduation day from college. Uh, I was downtown buying cufflinks for graduation. Uh, it's on the same street, the men's store that I had gone to. It's on the same street as the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I went in and applied. Uh, Luther Atkins, who was the personnel director, called me in, interviewed me, uh, had me fill out an application. And unlike what the friend uh, before me who was hired six months before me said, when he went in and said he did the same thing, he went in to apply, and they said, we don't have, I don't know, all of our porter jobs are filled. And and he said, no, 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 re-porter, re-porter. <laughs> well, that didn't happen to me because what happened to me was he uh, Luther Hackens took me up to introduce me to the managing editor and the city editor. And while I was interviewing him, I found out later, he was calling my professors at North Texas. 
And by the time I got home that afternoon, my mother said, somebody from the Star-Telegram called and wanted if you can start on Friday. You remember your first story? My, well, actually, my first story was an obituary. <laughs> uh, but but, but my, my second story that week was I had gone out. There had been a plane crash up near Keller in North Fort Worth. A small plane uh, had crashed. And... I had been. I had gone to to get the color. I mean, I had gone with the season reporter who was doing the main story, and I was supposed to get you know do interviews. And it was really interesting because many people had you know said, "Well, well, the plane, you know, the motor stopped and it came straight down, or it was trying to land and did this and then." Well, because I was a fresh reporter, I was also the one on the city desk taking answering the phone at night. Well, we get a call from American Airlines to tell us that. One of their training jets had just been in a collision with a small plane, and the American Air. Nobody has seen, and this is this is the lesson that taught me about eyewitnesses. All the eyewitnesses that I had interviewed that day never said anything about an American Airlines seven twenty seven or whatever it was. But that plane, a small plane, had actually run into the American Airlines jet and crashed, and nobody had seen it. That was my lesson on eyewitnesses. Well, that leads me to something else because, you know, eyewitness court testimony um, is the kind of thing that, that people um, sort of look at. Juries are known to look at this as being rock solid. There's there's now a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that, that we should question this. Over the years, you gained a reputation as someone that people could contact if they felt they had been wrongly convicted. First of all, I want to ask how often what your process was for deciding whether this was true or whether these were people who just wanted somebody to be advocating for them regardless. You know, it's really interesting because, I mean, even here at KERA uh, for years, I mean, I, I did have that reputation. I still do. I mean, and my greatest regret is that I get so much mail from prison now that I cannot even open it all, much less read it all and then answer it. I pass some of it on to organizations who don't have the time to do the same thing either. But there are people in these institutions who are looking for some hope, and we know now that many of them are innocent. Now, there are a lot of people say to me, oh, well, you just want everybody out of jail. You you don't think any I say, no, no. There are some people, I wake up every morning and say, oh, Lord, I'm sure glad he's in jail. <laughs> but the truth is there are a lot of people, and we know right here in Dallas County, the number of exonerations that we had, almost all of them through DNA testing, had eyewitnesses. I mean, whether they were victims or whoever else had eyewitness reports that we now know were wrong. Now, we also now know that the process was that the police had a way of making people think that they had seen whoever they identified. And and thank God we've been able to change that a bit in, in some of the latest legislation. Of course, one, one of the uh, pieces of legislation that did pass this, uh, this time in the session was the Tim Cole uh, Commission Act, where we were supposed to go back and re- re-examine all of those exonerated cases, the whole process from the police arrest to the DA taking the case through the court system to see what happened. I mean, how did we make this kind of mistake? Well, it got watered down quite a bit because, you see, the prosecutors don't like that idea because we also know that prosecutors in some of these cases knew that they had an innocent person and did not stop it. And, and, what what we've seen in several cases, what I, what I would do is, I mean, and, and there and there's one now that, that I, I'm still working with, and and I wish I could prove it. I can't prove it, but I know for a fact this is a case where the police actually took the guy 
to the person who was supposedly victimized before he took him downtown. This was, this was the case out of Irving thing. And it said, I think we got the man who did it. Wow. I mean, that that kind of thing. Now, that's not supposed to happen anymore. We're supposed to have, you know, uh, recorded interviews uh, and confessions if we do that. But still, I mean, the system is problem. Well, I mean, well, c- coming over today, uh, uh, listening to the radio, I mean, on an earlier show, this young guy up in out of Rikers Island, the 16-year-old who was who committed suicide last weekend, but at 16, he knew he was innocent, and they offered him time. I mean, you know, time served if he just confessed to it, and he didn't. And and here here's this kid who was arrested at 16, didn't do it. Prosecutors eventually dismissed the case. This kid commits suicide. We have a lot of cases like that. So, I mean, the criminal justice issue is still an important issue to me, and it always will be. And we've been able to prove some people innocent, uh, can't do them all, uh, been able to help stop an execution or two. Obviously, I wish I could stop them all because that's been a passion of mine since high school. But um, I, I just try to examine what I can examine. And, you know, I, I don't have a staff to go out, you know, like 60 minutes and reinvestigate all of these cases. But some of it's just poor uh, attorney work. A lot of them are public defender cases that people don't even look at the case files until it's almost time to go to trial. That's too late. I mean, the investigation has to start earlier. And so it's it's tough, but, I, but that's, that's still a passion of mine. I want to read an email that we have here from Gordon who says, A tribute to Bob Ray Sanders. I'm a proud member of the KELA Community Advisory Board and would likely never have gone in that direction if not for Bob Ray Sanders. About 10 years ago, I had some serious concerns about programming. Um, KERA had broadcast the execution of a death row inmate, and Bob Ray Sanders emailed me back several times based on my concerns and inquiries. This point in time made me realize Bob Ray truly cared about what an individual, as in merely one person, cared about in the media. I've never forgotten his outreach. I've admired his kindness and humor, very evident on pledge drives, and he seems like a best friend, even though I've never met him in person. I think of him as the person that inspired me to join the KERA Community Advisory Board. Congratulations to Bob Ray Ray Sanders on his retirement. Best wishes on all the great things I know he will continue to pursue. And that's from Gordon M. Markley. Hey, well, I appreciate that, Gordon. Uh, And again, I mean, well, part of what we do here, I mean, we do try to stay in touch with the listener, the reader. My my thing is, I mean, if, if you send me a letter, and I, and I get I get my share of hate mail for sure, and and some of it's unsigned and all that. So I mean you don't worry about that. But if you send me a letter or you send, give me a call, I'm going to try to get back with you. And sometimes people are shocked that you do that because they don't expect it. Uh, but the truth is is that we want to stay engaged with the listener, the the reader, the who, whoever. And when it comes to the institution like this, I mean people know how much I care about this institution. As you said, I was here from the beginning. Um, and and I'll always be involved here because, I mean, I feel like I'm part of it. I mean, this is family for me. And just like with the Star-Telegram, uh, the people there are still family and will always be family. Uh, there, there's an old, um, uh, well, I hear your music playing, but, the, but uh, remind me to tell you uh, an old uh, African-American proverb, which probably says where I am right now. 
All right, we will come to that in just a minute. We're speaking with Bob Ray Sanders, who recently retired from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, about 45, 46 years of serving North Texas through a life in journalism. We'll come back to the conversation in a couple of minutes. Funding for Think comes from SMU Graduate Liberal Studies, offering evening programs for a Master of Liberal Studies and the new Doctor of Liberal Studies degree. You can design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU this fall. More at smu.edu gls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. Bob Ray Sanders is here today. We're looking back on his long career of public service as a journalist with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and KERA, and then again with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, where he retired last month. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372. You promised us a proverb, Bob Ray. Oh, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> uh, and again, I don't know how how this will make sense to a lot of people, but it says, every shut-eye ain't sleep, every goodbye ain't gone. Every shut-eye ain't sleep and every goodbye ain't gone. Well, I, I entered into this new phase with my eyes wide open, and though they may close every now and then, it doesn't always mean I'm sleeping. But even though I've said a lot of goodbyes, I ain't gone. So I'm still here. Did you retire thinking, okay, here's exactly what, you know, some people have a plan. Some people are like, I just need six months to take some deep breaths and figure out what's next. I, I, I took it to say, I, mean, I did not want to. And in fact, with the calls that I've been getting over the last week and a half, I don't want to make any decisions quickly. I want to take time. I mean, obviously there are going to be some things I will do and some things I don't want to do, but I'm going to take my time to figure out what that is. And I have time to do that. So, no, I, I didn't leave with something else to do in mind, but knowing that there would always be something else to do. Do you have a novel in you? People have asked, I don't know that I have a novel in me. I, I like to think I have another play in me. I've written a couple of plays that have been, you know, done on a community basis and in and, and, and churches and things like that that I've written. I, I think I may work on a play uh, for sure. Uh, maybe a novel. Maybe a book based on just growing up in, in, in Fort Worth. I mean, not not about me, but about the place itself. Uh, I'd like to do a play on Moms Mabley. Hmm. Uh, and, and not really a play. It's more of a, like a, a presentation because she was so funny. This, this, this comedian who was just an incredible person that um, Whoopi Goldberg has done a documentary about. And I thought would be different than what it turned out to be a great documentary, but you, you don't see all the humor and 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 it is spoke to the times, particularly the uh, late fifties, early sixties, into the seventies. And I think I may be able to structure a play about Moms Mabley that 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 might work, uh, sort of a one woman play with some music interwoven into it. Uh, we'll see. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. We have Mark on the line in Dallas. Hi, Mark. Hi, Chris. Hi, Bob Ray. Mar oh, hey, Mark. Hey, Bob Ray. <laughs> uh, you, you are the institutional memory of KERA. I mean, who else is left? And 
I, I want. I mean, you've seen the entire evolution of the radio station and almost the entire evolution of the TV station. And I wondered if you could just take a minute and look back and and tell us who who were some of the the um, the bright lights of uh, the history of both the radio station and the TV station in your estimation. Great, um, a, g- a great question, and, and I'm glad to do that. But I should point out too that Mark, who was a videographer here, one of the great. Uh, filmmakers of all time uh, did great work, but also produced a, a film called Hate Mail, which was based on my hate mail, where he went out and found the people who wrote the letters and did this great documentary that won all kinds of awards. But Bob Wilson, without a doubt, the the first station manager, was an incredible inspiration and a visionary. Ron DeVille, who was the first program director, but at the very top was Ralph Rogers, who was chairman of the board and who put up with a lot of things. Because in those days, if we had an idea for a program, I mean, we were like the little rascals. And I, I don't mean that, you know, that we said, OK, let's do a show. And when somebody found the barn and they got some old quilts and hung them up for curtains. And we, and, and we put on if, if you had an idea, you could go do it. Uh, That kind of visionary was there. Lee Clark, of course, who ran Newsroom after Jim Lehrer. Jim Lehrer, who started Newsroom, came from the Dallas Times-Herald to do that. I mean, it's it's amazing what kind of people were here then. But we had an array of people like Mark, for example, uh, Craig Mays uh, was another filmmaker, but Patsy Swank, Bill Porterfield, all of those people in those early Newsroom days, Renee Castilla, we helped change Dallas, and we have changed Dallas media through that program. I have no doubt about that. Uh, there, there were there were great visionaries in in those uh, early days, and, uh, and and of course, other people would come along. Ed Fister, who was a station manager after Bob Wilson, who really gave me the opportunity and the go ahead to do the uh, Aussie and Ruby program with Aussie Davis and Ruby D, and. Uh, I had the idea, but KERA, the only reason I met Ossie was because he was down here uh, narrating a program that the station was producing for PBS, and I met him at lunch, and I was, you know, just station manager, just become station manager here at KERA, and I remembered a program that he and Ruby had done that was broadcast on black radio like at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Sunday nights, and I, I talked to him about that. He says, you know... First of all, I mean, that's Kraft's program. Kraft produced it, and they have we, we don't have any control over that. But we'd love to do that on television. Hmm. And Fister said, go to New York and talk to them. And then he said, okay, they are interested. Uh, you got $10,000 to produce a pilot, a 20-minute pilot. I what mean, year was it, this, $10,000? Uh, yeah, $10,000. This was 1978, 79. Because we the the show we produced a show between eighty and eighty three, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, that that was unprecedented. And and again, and and they did it, and of course, and then you know PBS and the stations uh, bought into it, and we got Alcoa to be the sponsor. But that's how that came about. But it, it was vision. Uh, Ron DeVille, of course, the the program director that I mentioned, brought Money Python to America. First here to KERA, but to America, and uh, which is why even when they stopped allowing PBS stations to have it, uh, and it went to some other syndicate, they said if there's any station who can still show Monty Python, it's KERA in Dallas. So, 
yeah, great people have come through these walls. Do you have a favorite storytelling medium? Well, you know what? I, I, I love radio because it requires the imagination still. Uh, I, I, know, I know the power of television, and it's something I had learned here because I majored in journalism. But when I went back to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and it's really interesting how that came about because uh, some student asked me at some conference, you know, what's your major goal or what's your next goal? I said, I don't have any goals. I said, in, in terms of doing something else, I said, at some point I'm going back into print journalism because that's, that's my love. That, and, and I still love the storytelling of words uh, that you can do in print or on radio. So I think print is still it. But uh, it was that in that audience when that student asked that question was the publisher then of the Star-Telegram, Rich Connor, who called me up shortly after said, did you mean that? Are you serious? Are you ready? And, of course, the question was, what would I do once I got back if I went back? But, anyway, that's what got me back home. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go next on the phone to Dave in Dallas. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hey, Bobby. Hey. (laughs) My friends. My friends. Yeah. Listen, brother, I want to thank you. Um, So many of the great things that KRA does today go back to you when you were station manager. And, Chris, I won't go into all the history, but I'll tell you this. On election night in 1980, when Ronald Reagan got elected the first time, Bob Ray Sanders and I worked that election night together, just the two of us down there. And the only thing we had to go on was the feeds off the wire. You got it. And the station's built so much since then. And we all stand on your shoulders. Oh. And I want to remind you that in 1981, speaking of stories, you and I got a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts to allow me to go all over Texas and record the oral history of um, older Texans, old governors and, you know, people who saw the first airplane flying to Texas. So I just want to encourage you to write a memoir because you love stories. You're a great storyteller. Uh, you've supported the use of narrative at KRA. And uh, you're just somebody that has a story to tell, Bob, right? And, you know, you and I have told it to each other over lunch many a time. But I'm telling you, you need to write your story. Uh, Thanks for your call, Dave. Dave Mark was uh, a great storyteller himself and, and a great actor. But, um, yeah, those, those were the days. I mean, you know, we were doing things on a shoestring. Sometimes we didn't have—we you know, were waiting. We don't have all this equipment that you have here today. We don't have the instant, you know— uh, data that you get automatically. You know, we have the old teletype still coming into the place in 1980, and that's, but we did it. It's funny to think about how much the facility has changed. I mean, I came after we had this big, beautiful building, but this fancy neighborhood grew up around what used to be a station located not so much in the fanciest part of town. It was Little Mexico, and you know what, and and my my relationship, and I still talk to people from that old community, you know, uh, Salvia Sana and, and those people who had a store down the street yeah. and all. My regret is that the neighborhood is gone, uh, and so many things happen here. and And I can remember when there would be Cinco de Mayo celebrations, uh, DSCA uh, celebrations, uh, and they wouldn't use our parking lot. Now we had a couple of people here who didn't like the idea of people using our parking lot at night. 
And one guy I can remember put up barricades at one Cinco de Mayo for the people going to park uh, to the park across the street. And I went and removed them. And so the kids in this neighborhood and, and, the, and the family in this neighborhood loved me for whatever reason. Everybody loves but, you. Oh, yeah, but, but then one of the most tragic things happened. A young 12-year-old boy was shot by the police. We're talking about police shooters hmm. now. Santos Rodriguez uh, was killed sitting handcuffed in, in the back of a police car while his brother was seated uh, in the police car with him. Dallas's first, quote, riot happened as a result of that. But it was held in the park across the street. And I was with that family. And we celebrated or commemorated, I should say, uh, the anniversary just last year uh, of, of, of that event. And for the first time, the Dallas mayor finally apologized for the city of Dallas for that shooting. There was... We waited forty years for that to happen, but but it, it's amazing. But this community, I, I miss that community. You know, the Tamale Factory, which was two blocks down, that we often went and got lunch. Uh, it was an incredible community. Uh, it's gone now, and we knew eventually it would be, but we thought it'd be around a little longer than than it lasted. Could you say the same of the print newspaper industry? <laughs> You know, um, the print newspaper industry will be around longer than many people think it will be, I think, uh, primarily because it still provides a source for other people. There are a lot of people who, you know, websites and all that giving information out. But if you go to them, you're normally sent to a newspaper website. So the, the, the print part of the newspaper business will eventually disappear. Um I mean, not in my lifetime, I don't think, by any means. But somebody still has to send people down to City Hall and to the county courthouse and to the state legislature. And these one-person website things are not going to be able to do that. They still need that information. So newspapers will still be around. You know, radio stations, for the most part, don't have the staff to do all that newspapers do. And so, yeah, they'll be around for a while, but uh, it's old people like me who love to hold a print newspaper in their hand with a cup of coffee on the side. Young people are getting their uh, information from their devices, whatever they happen to be. So the last time you announced a retirement, you actually gave the Star-Telegram another 25 years of your life. <laughs> Does this mean that, like, Monday morning we might get a call and you're back here for 25 years? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, I think we've, we've passed that. I mean, every goodbye ain't gone, but it, it's, it's, it's gone from that, I think. Um, you, you just know when it's time to move, you know. Uh, and again, when I first left the Star-Telegram coming to KERA, that was a really tough time for me because I was leaving family again. When I left KERA, uh, after almost 20 years at that time, uh, that was a tough time because it was family, even though I kept being associated in various ways with panel discussions and other kinds of shows and obviously with the radio, um, begging for money every now and then. Uh and then when I went back to start Telegram, yeah, it was it was a tough decision to make. But once made, hey, it was 
it was great. I mean, it was uh, one of the best decisions I think I've ever made. Well, you're always welcome here. Thank you so much, Bob Ray. Thank you. Bob Ray Sanders retired last month from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He also worked at KERA in his career. Don't be a stranger. Oh, I won't. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. The show's email is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.